Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Techspansive. I'm Sean Dubrovac at Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. Uh, in this week's news, we see that uh, Twitter apparently looked to acquire Clubhouse at some point earlier this year. They were turned down at uh, around a $4 billion valuation, and Clubhouse is now looking to raise funding at uh, something similar to that valuation. Uh, In the meantime, of course, Twitter didn't acquire Clubhouse, but went out and created uh, a clone of Clubhouse for the the Twitter space. And uh, kind of the same story happened last year when they looked to buy Substack. That didn't materialize. Instead, they acquired a different email newsletter service that they are integrating into uh, into the Twitter platform as well. Uh, and in other related news, we saw that uh, Facebook has now launched into public beta its hotline platform, which is a web-based app letting creators stream live video or audio only, similar to, uh, to Clubhouse and Twitter Spaces, uh, kind of a Q&A platform and events are, are recorded automatically. Uh, Sarah Perez at TechCrunch called this a mashup of Instagram Live and Clubhouse. We've talked about some of these competitors on, on the podcast and in the previous weeks. You know, the idea of uh, a company offering to buy out a startup and starting up a competitive service when it doesn't acquire that startup uh, is a very old story in uh, in Silicon Valley, uh, and um, uh, you know certainly certainly spaces uh, the Twitter offering as as you mentioned, Sean, is uh, very very similar uh, to to Clubhouse. Um, but I think it's interesting that we are starting to see some skepticism regarding Clubhouse. I don't know if it's wholly related to the idea that these social giants are. Uh, getting into the the market, uh, or the idea that we're starting to see this um, spectrum of offerings that range from pure play audio chat, which is essentially what Clubhouse is, to this kind of hybrid model with video that that you mentioned that Facebook is rolling out, to other things that uh, integrate these kinds of audio exchanges into something that's more of an asynchronous social posting paradigm, like uh, uh, this uh, app called Swell uh, that I I may have mentioned uh, previously, or uh, another one called uh, Squadcast, uh, which kind of is somewhere in the middle between uh, Clubhouse and a podcasting uh, application, because part of the idea, or one, one of the open questions I think in this space is, are these all going to be asynchronous live events uh, or are they kind of places to create short excerpts that are ultimately packaged up into something more uh, like, like a podcast? So, um, so th- there, there is some of that uh, skepticism out there at this point. Uh, and the, uh, the $4 billion uh, number is, is you know, just kind of an interesting coincidence, uh, maybe why it's coming to light now. Uh, the question is kind of, you know, would you would you rather be Instagram or Snapchat? You know, would you rather be the 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 popular service that gets acquired uh, and parlayed in a best case 
uh, into uh, a, a very popular, you know, global service and incumbent service, or, or would you rather stay independent and, you know, uh, scrape scrape by, you know, for for whatever user base you can uh, on on a more limited uh, basis? Um, uh, so uh, so that's that's kind of the path that uh, uh, that uh, that Clubhouse faces and. I, I think it would be really interesting to see if they do stay independent and if they do uh, grow their their user base, what direction they take the service. You know, do they stay pure play, as Twitter did for many many years, and of course now is going in all kinds of crazy directions, as you noted, uh, or do they, uh, you know, do do they start adding things like video or archiving? I mean, some of those seem like no brainers to me, but. You know, there's there's also this idea of of keeping it pure, and and you know that's what's uh, appealed to the base so far. So well, well, and I think the path to to monetization is also important. So, do they start integrating advertisements, which they then give hosts a, a cut of, mm. and they get some share of advertisements, similar to an an anchor type model where you can add. Uh, you can add, uh, you know, advertising to your podcast. Do they start to do some type of subscription service and, and maybe that unlocks additional features or maybe they allow hosts to charge for, for entry, some nominal fee. And then um, that also then, you know, they share that, that money with the host, And so they're able to monetize it. So there's, I think a lot of questions around uh, monetization that have yet to been be answered for all of these uh, all of these services. Uh, I think you know Twitter's Twitter's motivation here is to keep audiences on the platform, and it isn't unlike uh, Yahoo of days long gone by, where they were acquiring different assets to try to keep people on the platform, and they were measuring time on platform as a as a key metric for for valuation. Uh, I, I think the other big question, though, like as you raise, is do you do you acquire the you know the the inventor, if you will, or the, or the one who really uh, drove the service, or do you just clone it and add it to your existing portfolio? Uh, and, and in all these instances, Twitter ultimately can just replicate relatively easy the the feature and add it to uh to the platform but will they be able to garner the same type of audience that that clubhouse has been able to garner that becomes the you know i think a a big question and then it's clear to me that we are moving into the these groups we're moving away from just broad broadcasting of information to masses and moving towards group. Facebook has been on this journey now for some time, trying to move their audience into groups. And and Hotline is, I think, just another extension of that, trying to build out the features that users will be using in, in the future. And and you know what's interesting with Facebook is behind the the Facebook banner, they understand how to monetize social content better than anybody, arguably. And so they'll be able to continue to monetize these platforms as long as they keep users in in these spaces. Uh, it, it will be interesting to see, I think, also how corporations use these platforms. We really haven't seen corporations take, in my opinion, take full advantage of these platforms. 
uh, a Q&A feature could be really interesting for a new product launch or something like that, where they would, uh, you know, want to in- invite maybe early, early users to it. So rather than uh, in-, in the past, you know, they did these things where they might inv- invite people to, um, to see it and then report on it. Maybe they start to use something like hotline to do product launches and, and they can pick the questions they want to answer they can repackage that perhaps and and post that on their site or have that available. So there's a lot of interesting, I think, ways that corporations might start to use these services. And we haven't really seen much of that yet. I, I think we've seen some. You know, I think we've seen uh, some companies gain uh, notoriety or, or at least publicity for the personalities of their Twitter presence. Um, but I totally agree with you, Sean, on the monetization issue where Facebook uh, has, uh, has really been the master uh, of, of that and Twitter less so and, and only in part because they have a much smaller user base. I think it's also been because it's just been very difficult to monetize uh, spurts of content coming out 260 you know, characters uh, at, at, a, at a time. Uh, and, uh, and so what Twitter has historically been is basically a big link network you know, you would link off to the blog post or the YouTube video or, you know, whatever else you were doing. Uh, and, uh, and I think a big part of what they're doing now, to your point of like trying to keep people on platform, uh, is to have those links go to things that Twitter owns. Uh, so, uh, so that, and, and to, you know, use the, uh, their user base to incubate those kinds of things, uh, which, you know, coming back to your, your uh, is really the, um, the, the rationalization uh, of, of the purchase of, of review, the, the Substack competitor. Now that's kind of a new business, I think, for them and a new model. Uh, but when you look at something like Clubhouse, even though it may be a different medium, uh, I still think it's very much in the wheelhouse of, of what they know and certainly what Facebook knows. Uh, you know, this idea of just you know providing a platform for audio. Certainly, from a technical perspective, it's a feature, and and the question becomes. From a service perspective, is it a feature? So that's the big question. Yeah. And Twitter stood that feature up very quickly, which you know of suggests yeah, that they it's were not, it's not challenging. Yeah. yeah. So they they were able to uh, you know I I don't know how long those conversations went regarding the acquisition of Clubhouse, but as quickly as they dissolved, Twitter Spaces was was erected <laughs> and and maybe had already been in works. Uh, where Twitter had been experimenting with it, so they were able to to dust it off or to expand it and and launch it relatively quickly. So I I do think you are seeing Twitter uh, innovating relatively quickly in these spaces. And to your point, I think that's a, a very great point that they're trying to get people to 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 not leave the Twitter ecosystem, but to move to other pieces of the Twitter ecosystem that might have different monetization models, uh, different sub- subscription type services that they can then monetize. And, and yet in the past, when they've tried that, they've struggled. Uh, Vine, Periscope, um, you know, good examples of that. So we'll see. Yeah. Uh, in other big news this week, we saw some of the uh, we we got additional information about the Epic Apple lawsuit. Uh, as you'll recall, back in August of last year, Apple removed Fortnite from the App Store, 
after an update that bypassed the, the App Store's in-app purchase system. Uh, at that point, uh, or shortly thereafter, Epic sued Apple for a- antitrust motivations. Uh, this week, we saw that um, we got some uh, additional news. Uh, we had the publications of court filings from both Apple and Epic Games. In uh, in um, in that, we saw uh, we get a little bit better view of their cases. Ultimately, what they um, what they're planning to do. So uh, both sides were required to submit their documents known as findings of facts and conclusions of laws. These are essentially the arguments that they are making. Uh, We see from Epic that they argue that um, Apple is utilizing its platform to create ecosystem lock-in and to to keep people locked in and that this is at the uh, forefront of their strategy. Uh, Apple's counter argument is that they don't uh, they don't really lead the game market that they've created a platform that creates a lot of economic value and um, you know and, and they're just there to uh, to play a role but they don't uh, lead that market well you know last um, I think I think it was in our last podcast uh, we talked about Apple citing the web you know as its uh, main competition for for services um, that really hasn't been the case uh, for games in particular. Uh, And, uh, you know, Apple is not a games developer. It doesn't compete directly with Fortnite, uh, but uh, Apple is an Epic developer, uh, an Epic competitor, uh, because uh, Epic runs an app store. And that's really what this has been about. It was never really about uh, anything intrinsic uh, in Fortnite uh, causing uh, Apple to pull it. It was, you know, and for years, Fortnite was, you know, raking in mountains of, of cash uh, for, for both Epic and Apple uh, on the Apple App Store. And then at some point, <laughs> something shifted in, uh, in Tim Sweeney's head and he decided that he was getting a raw deal and, uh, you know, uh, decided that he wanted to challenge uh, Apple by uh, allowing alternate forms of payment. And he makes the case that, you know, he really wants the Epic App Store on, uh, on iPhones, uh, which of course Apple is, is going to be uh, loath to, uh, to allow. And so that's really what, what this case comes down to. Now, uh, I, for me, the most interesting takeaway uh, in, these, uh, in these documents uh, is the argument that, well, w- what about the Mac? You know, the Mac has an app store uh, and yet, uh, you know, that, that provides some of the benefits uh, of, of the iPhone app store. And yet, uh, as, if you're a Mac user, <clears throat> you can go uh, acquire Mac apps from other app stores, from, from the developer, uh, you know, you can download them from the web uh, so, you know, there, there are many other options out there, and yet, uh, you know, the Mac remains a, a viable platform. It's not like it's overrun with, uh, you know, with, with this plague of viruses and uh, all, all, all these other doomsday scenarios uh, that, that, you know, could be argued happen without this kind of uh, curation. <clears throat> and it's just kind of funny because, of course, the Mac App Store was developed after the iPhone app store uh, as a a sort of a more relaxed version of the model. 
And, uh, you know, if, if um, Apple were starting over, perhaps it would implement that kind of control uh, on the Mac. If, if they were developing the Mac today, it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, but you're dealing, you're just dealing with a whole bunch of legacy. Uh, and, and you have to remember that, uh, in fact, you know, if you, if you want a good example of what the Mac would be like uh, if, if the Apple App Store were exclusive, Look, look at the iPad, you know, that, that's essentially what that experience is. Uh, other than the touch screen, uh, that's, uh, that's one thing that, that really, uh, really separates the platforms. So, uh, so of course, early in the iPhone, uh, Steve Jobs didn't want any apps uh, on, on the iPhone. He just wanted to allow you to access uh, web apps, uh, much, much like the Chromebook uh, in, in the early days, uh, and eventually relented uh, but with these, um, you know, with, with these, these very uh, restrictive policies in, in place. Uh, you know, I, I think the other uh, argument uh, is Google Play. And I know that Epic has, has also taken issue with, uh, with Google. Uh, but today on Android, you can have alternative app stores. Uh, even, even with Google Play, you, you can download apps directly from the web if you uh, choose to check a box that acknowledges that you're opening yourself up to security risks. Uh, and of course, you know, in, in the case of both the Mac and Android, there are probably more security issues that, that come up uh, than, than on the iPhone. Um, but, uh, but again, you know, both, both platforms are viable, both have a a broad base of developers, uh, both are in use every day. Uh, and, um, you know, there's, uh, they, they managed to do so, e even with these, these kinds of allowances. Well, and, and Epic would suggest that Apple is just using that their security as a, what they call pretext well, yeah, for, for its cuts that it, uh, you know, isn't, uh, that the security, necessary for securing the experience is provided by the device. And so additional vetting provided by the app store is unnecessary given that the, the, the security is provided by uh, the device. Um, and in fact, in their filing, they say Apple's app review process is cursory and provides minimal security benefits beyond the on-device security that is already provided by iOS. So we will hear more and see more of this. The judge has uh, has announced that uh, that the trial will is expected to take place around May third. So in the next month or so, we should hear more from this. Ross, as we were talking beforehand, you don't expect to see a settlement. So we expect to see no. this go to a court. Uh, holy war! Yeah, uh, <laughs> it looks like. Uh, you know, Apple CEO Tim Cook, Apple's SVP of software, Craig Federi, Federi, and, and other company executives are expected to testify at the trial. Um, last month, many of those executives said they look forward to sharing with the court the very positive impact the App Store has had on innovation. So we will probably get a really good glimpse, maybe not in their, their formal testimony, but in the any cross-examinations, we might see some really interesting insights. It's always these type of trials that give us an inside view on some of the dynamics that take place. Uh, so expect more disclosures 
to be forthcoming in the next month and, and certainly in May when the trial hits. You'll hear more about that in, in future episodes for sure. Uh, in other interesting Apple news, uh, we saw this week that, that Apple is uh, creating a, an extension of what they have been using for uh, Find My iPhone. And they are um, allowing others to, uh, to now start to take advantage of this service. So they, are, it, they have unveiled a revamped Find My program, which will support third-party devices, not just the Apple devices. They've already had a number of device manufacturers sign on, including Belkin, uh, Chipolo, and Von Moof, uh, which will be some of the first to, uh, to utilize it. And uh, inevitably, more will come. I think this is a, a smart move on Apple's part. So, I, And Apple is constantly confronted with how much do we bring on to the platform and how many of our proprietary features do we, do we allow to use um, on, on other places. So iMessage clearly is something that is not likely anytime soon to show up on other devices. They see it as a, as a competitive differentiator between the other platforms. And while they could easily put iMessage on Android, they probably won't. Uh, here, though, that does look like they're going to start to use other, allow third parties to, uh, to tie into their Find My, My program. I think it's a smart move. I think uh, as more and more things get connected, we're constantly misplacing them or leaving them and not sure where they are. So being able to have a digital way to find that is interesting. Obviously, there's been third-party platforms like Tile that are are trying to do something like this. But as more and more devices get connected, then you could do it directly in the Find My program. So I think it's an, it's an interesting move from Apple. Well, and and you know also the subject of third-party criticism. You know, you mentioned Tile, uh, which I believe is a member of the Coalition for App Fairness that uh, Epic has, um, uh, has started and enlisted a number of prominent uh, developers uh, into uh, in, in asking for app store reforms. This, this one's a little bit, um, is playing out a little differently than I think most people expected uh, because most people expected Apple to release its own set of tags uh, that have been uh, rumored to be called uh, air tags. Uh, and, uh, and then there was the question of, well, would it be open to third-party tagging systems? And uh, these Chipolo guys are—that's uh, that, what they do. You know, they make a, a, a tag, one of these little fine lost item tags, uh, and they're they're going to be uh, be participating. Uh, I'm guessing Belkin will also produce tags. They they produce a wide range of accessories, uh, and Van Moof uh, is a maker of uh, electric scooters that. Uh, uh, it's probably better known in Europe uh, than, than it is here. So, uh, so they're they're opening it up to these these third party tagging systems and, and device manufacturers uh, in advance of offering their own third party tags. Uh, you know, of course, Apple's own devices work with its Find My feature today, uh, and um, and and as you mentioned, Sean, uh, <clears throat> you know, the company has gone at different paces in terms of uh, letting third parties play into its systems. Um, <clears throat> with uh, Siri, for example, you know, was restricted to its own services 
for quite some time and now it's, it's starting to open that up um, uh, a bit more. Um, you know, back in the day, uh, iTunes uh, worked with a, a whole bunch of third-party music players and MP3 players uh, before Apple introduced the iPod. Uh, and you know, even then, for for some time. So, uh, at you know, it, I'm sure at some point we will see AirTags, but perhaps in part because those have taken longer to materialize than um, people were expecting. They want to be able to have some some other options out there. And I think it always comes down to how how is Apple going to price these things? They want to be able to price the hardware. And how do you price something that uh, it can be commoditized by by others? Um, so I think this is an interesting move for them to just open up the the software to to others and allow third parties to integrate into it, and then Apple becomes the the home for that uh, that service. So we'll see how quickly this is adopted. To your point, Ross, and see how many others join in and, and subscribe. I'll, I'll also be interested to see how aggressive Apple becomes. My guess is actually not very aggressive uh, about having other people integrate uh, AirTag functionality into their products. That's really been a big push uh, for Tile. Uh, and so they're finding technology is now in HP laptops and Bose head, headphones and, and a number of other products. Yeah. Uh, in other news this week, or our final story, uh, CNBC is reporting that Best Buy is testing a new membership program in select stores in Iowa, Oklahoma, and in eastern Pennsylvania. They're calling the program Best Buy Beta. It'll cost just under $200 per year, $199.99. Uh, it will include things like free shipping, and uh, to me, more interestingly, unlimited tech support from the Geek Squad and exclusive membership pricing. So, uh, you know, Best Buy as a as a hardware retailer uh, producing products that are essentially commoditized, standardized across all retailers. It's been hard to uh, compete against, uh, you know, the the likes of Amazon. And they have always experimented with uh, services and how to how to match some of the services like free shipping that Amazon offers, but also taking advantage of their, their geek squad and adding in, uh, you know, geek squad. So I, I think it's a, it's a move that Best Buy probably needs to make. They need to figure out how to, how to differentiate themselves beyond just being a uh, brick and mortar and online retailer. I also think it's an interesting time to think about tech support as we integrate more and more technology devices, I could see this being interesting for, for small businesses or even micro businesses, gig, gig workers who uh, need tech support and just don't want to do it. They want to outsource it. I could see it being interesting for family members who need to do tech support for their, uh, for their parents. And uh, a, gift, a gift for grandma. Yeah. For sure. A gift for yeah. grandma. You can get her this, uh, you know, Best Buy beta, and then if she doesn't want to call you for tech support, she can call the Best Buy beta and get help with, with often routine uh, you know, tech support. So I think it's an interesting uh, business model. Uh, it will be interesting to see how valuable some of the other pieces of the service are going to be. Free shipping, exclusive pricing. Uh, I, I see those not being probably as, as popular as they might want them to be. 
Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I do like the unlimited tech support angle, and I, I think they're in a good position to provide it. Um, and I know that there have been <clears throat> a number of uh, companies uh, that have contracted with retailers over the years to provide these kinds of services. Um, I believe on a subscription basis, but, but certainly on a pay-per-incident basis. Uh, one thing I'd, I would like to see them, and particularly because it is uh, not an inexpensive uh, service, <clears throat> is to perhaps offer some kind of discount on, uh, on warranties, uh, which is a big uh, profit center uh, for them. And uh, anything they could do to, even if they took a little bit of a hit on the margin, uh, it would, um, I, I think it would probably be useful to, to both Best Buy uh, and the customer. In addition to discounts on uh, home installations, you know, which is a, a different kind of proposition than tech support, uh, where you're calling when things have gone wrong, uh, as opposed to you know installation, where again you're more encouraged to uh, to 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 buy up, right? To you know to buy things that might require networking or. Um, or you know, mounting a TV. I know that that's not as uh, <clears throat> as important, a or you know, as, as as much of a phenomenon now as it once was. Uh, you know, in the early days of, uh, of HD TV. Uh, but um, you know, I, I still see plenty of those vans uh, around the neighborhood, and um, uh, it, it it would be a way for them to tie into a number of more profitable. And I think incentivize more profitable services um, because, again, uh, at that price point, I mean, you're talking about something that's uh, what 50% premium over prime about, and uh, you know, you're, you're not getting all the media goodies. So, yeah, I think that's where it's a really hard proposition. I think that's where all of these kind of free free shipping subscription services or hard propositions in, in a world with prime membership at you know $119 a year. Cause not only do you get free shipping, but you get all of the other things that, that come along with that. And increasingly that's probably going to continue to expand. I think Amazon will continue to, to add things to prime. And so that will, will expand that portfolio. Um, We've talked about ShopRunner in the past, which is mm -hmm. kind of a prime competitor offer, you know, partners with retailers for free shipping. And uh, over the past couple of years, it seems like whenever I bought something at a retailer that I haven't purchased something from before, it's like, you get free ShopRunner, you know, because they they want to lower the barriers uh, for you switching back to Amazon. So uh, inevitably more to come there. We'll see if Best Buy is able to uh, to make this successful uh, you know, arguably from a revenue standpoint, it would it it would uh, uh, augment their traditional revenue. It, much of this would be margin for them, which is what they desperately need. So, uh, I see why they're doing the doing it. It'll be interesting to see if it's a, a viable option for them. Uh, that's a great place to end this week's episode of Techspansive. Again, I'm Sean Dubervac. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubervac, and I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Thanks as always for listening.